Before Nick Ginger was thinking of privacy impacts, he was working in tax. Nick's first job was at Barnes & Noble. Both his work in tax and privacy have been global. And uh, with that, I'm thrilled to welcome Nick Ginger, who is the, the senior privacy, uh, senior, senior vice president and senior counsel at uh, City National Bank. And in addition to that, he's the chair of the privacy law section of the California Lawyers Association. And uh, with that, I thank you so much, Nick, for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right, let's get into it. So uh, we'll start with growing up. You actually grew up uh, across the pond over in England. Talk a little about growing up and uh, what you wanted to be as, as a kid. Oh, wow. That's that's going back. So I have no idea what I wanted to, what uh, I wanted to be as a kid, other than I'm pretty sure I just wanted to do whatever it was my dad did. And the problem there is I didn't really know what my dad did. And that, as you can imagine, led to some complications in college. But um, I grew up in England, as you said, um, and I, I lived there until I was about 10 years old. Um, that was back in the back in the 80s, where it was a very different place than it is now. Um, you know, it was, it was fun. It was a, it was a good childhood. Loved it. And then, um, you know. Different different economic realities happen and uh, we moved to the States. Interesting. Now, uh, so then you moved to, to California right away. So I we did a stint. In, a stint. We we lived in Philadelphia, which was awesome. I was there for about a year and a half, and that was sort of my first um, real exposure to America. It was pretty interesting. Um, I think that's where what little accent or what shred of an accent I have left comes across every once in a while. If you ask me to say anything with the letter R, I'll probably not be able to say it properly. But lived there for a year and a half. Um, really cool. It was my childhood was just like what reminded me of like when I saw Stranger Things, except without the monsters. It was just like that. A bunch of kids riding around like BMX bikes getting into trouble. So that's great. It was cool. And then I moved to California. I moved to Southern California where um where all the TV shows I watched growing up were made, and it was just amazing. Interesting. So when was that? In high school you moved to California? Um, it would have been sixth grade. Sixth grade. Okay. Okay. So then, uh, talk a little bit more about that. So did you figure out uh, what your dad did at that point or? I don't think I ever really knew what my dad did until, um, until after high school, I guess he, so I could, it's not a secret. He wasn't a spy or anything. He, he funnily enough worked in, I think the technology industry. So back in the seventies, there was, um, a boom in things like storage technology, which was actually one of the names of one of his companies. But there was a movement from, I don't know if it's called magnetic tape or whatnot, to optical discs. This was revolutionary back in the day. He had a lot to do with advising the sales folks on what that technology could do. And then later on, there was another massive boom when a company, I think it was called ITEL, figured out that instead of buying mainframes companies could just lease them and that that was just a huge development a lot of companies then had access to mainframes and powerful computing for the first time wow interesting um okay so then uh at, at, let's get into that so in, in high school i think you worked at uh, barnes and noble and so talk about the you know your first jobs there i did i was uh, 16 when i got a got a job there i grew up in as you know, Southern California, where 
you more or less need a car to do absolutely anything. So to get a car, you had to get gas and insurance, which means you had to get a job unless you were lucky enough to have parents that covered that for you. Um, but my parents thought if you want something, then you need to go out and get a job and make your own money. So I started working um, for Barnes & Noble at 16, worked in a um, what's called Bookstar. It was owned by Barnes & Noble, but it was this massive, I mean, everybody knows what Barnes & Noble is. It's just like that. It was, But back then, it was unusual to have a bookstore that was just like this massive store. And I thought it was pretty cool. I thought it was intellectual. And the neat thing about that is you you get exposure to a lot of literature without having to read the books. So people can say, oh, yeah, they'll talk about some famous author and you know all about them. But, you know, I do like reading books, but it, it was just a neat way to just see all the different um, topics that are out there. And then that was also when Oprah Winfrey had her book club and she'd have somebody come on and say, hey, I like this book. And then the next thing you know, you have a line out the door of people wanting to buy that book. And there are always, always current events and interesting things going on. Um, but I tell you the one thing, the one thing that for me was notable about that, notable about that job, up until that time, uh, myself and my friends, we, all, we figured that adults were adults. And then I think anybody who works retail quickly learns adults are not always adults. And sometimes adults are... <laughs> More, more like children. And that, I mean, that was a huge eye opener for me. I was actually shocked to realize just how, what a wide range of personalities um, people could have. Yeah, interesting. You know, and do, do you consider, you still see that uh, today in your work in the privacy world? <laughs> you see it everywhere, but I mean, that, yeah. I think it's a good thing for any kid to, to get exposure in retail and just kind of meet different people yeah. and see different types of folks. But Mm -hmm. My friends and I all, you know, whatever 16 year olds would do when you get together and hang out, we, we would always comment like, God, it's so weird. Like people can be really strange and we didn't expect that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great lesson. Um, okay. So then uh, <clears throat> around that time, I, or maybe your next job in high school was uh, working at uh, as a server in a, in a restaurant. Talk about that. Yeah, that was really cool. That was... Um, when I did, I had this sort of long range plan where I wanted to move away to go to college. And I thought, okay, well, working retail at minimum wage probably won't help. So one night we're out for dinner at, at a steakhouse and I just, I just did mental math, right? I, I saw what our bill was. I calculated what a, a regular tip would be. And then I noticed that our server had about three or four other tables. And I thought, man, he's making that much money an hour. And if he only works two hours a night, that's like way more than I would ever make. So um, I just started applying at restaurants and I got a job as a server. It's an old um, restaurant. It's still around. It's called Claim Jumper, but it, it went corporate like 20 years ago. Um, it's a very different place now, but it was probably one of the best jobs I've ever had in my life. I worked there on and off for like six years and nothing negative to say about that experience. Um Things I learned there um, really, really learned how to rely on your coworkers to get things done. Every restaurant is structured a little differently. This restaurant, you you couldn't actually do your job unless your coworkers helped you out. Everybody had had to help each other out. Um, there was an insane amount of structure and process there. Every, there was a procedure that was written up for everything. I still remember that the the sugar caddies had to have eight brown sugars, fifteen white sugars. 
eight pink and eight blue all facing up in the same direction every day every night we couldn't leave until everything was done those little you know under the under the booths there's like a ledge that nobody ever ever sees we had to get down the flashlight and just like polish the whole thing i mean it was it was interesting the process and and the the repetition and the routine i think that's why that particular restaurant was so successful well yeah and the uh, things you remember all these years later about the about the sugar i, I still do i think a lot of, about a lot of the stuff i learned i mean it also didn't hurt that they had some pretty damn good food so that's great now i think you also worked uh doing something online in about 2000 i guess right before the uh the bubble burst or you know was yeah toddler yeah, so that... the, talk a, you know get into that a little so my degree in college was international business. And I thought, you know, maybe I should get more familiar with with the internet, right? Because back then it was sort of this nascent thing. And um, I had only had an email address for about a year at that point, as did a lot of other people. So there was an opportunity with this company that was called, um, I don't want to say the name, but um, it was online services. And I thought this would be a great opportunity. I'll learn all about web development and and things like that. None of that was true. Um, I don't want to say it was a total scam. I actually kind of had a little bit of respect for what the guy did. When I showed up for my interview, there were that was a regular office with a bunch of bunch of students, and there were students from I think there was an Italian student, some French students. I thought, wow, this is really a global thing. I think what the owner had figured out is he could get free labor by having interns. Um, and essentially what we did is we combed through different web pages to find ones that weren't so good. And then we would document it and call the company and try to set up an appointment with the owner of my company. And he would sell web development services. And this is back before Squarespace or all that stuff where having a web page was not an easy thing to do. Sure. That's essentially what it is. Um, so it was a lot of sales, a lot of um, just grinding through websites um not exactly the experience i set out to get but i think it was still a valuable experience nonetheless the thing that kind of frustrated me was when you're making all these cold calls you get i don't know you get kind of bored and you start playing games like maybe i'll try an accent on this call <laughs> i was unprepared for just how responsive people would be when i would call them and just you know be super excited and over the top you know just really um effervescent and bubbly and it's like when I, whenever I spoke to somebody like that, almost guaranteed I'd get a, an appointment booked with them. And I thought, man, I can't believe people respond to that. That's, that's disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not cold horror logic, but just some guy who, who calls up in a happy, happy uh, mood and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, it goes to show you just how far that can go in life. So good to know. Lesson learned, not, not a happy one, but you know. No, no. Yeah, it's great. Now, um, talk about, so I guess just taking a little step back, like you said, you were, I guess, in college at that point at, uh, in San Diego. So talk about, I guess, you know, going, going there, going to school and uh, your college days. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. So my college experience, the, the thing that most people think about, I didn't really get that from going to college. I got that from the restaurant. The restaurant was a bunch of young people working together, hanging out, all that stuff. The the college, I went to San Diego State. It was just, it was a lot of hard work. Um, and funnily enough, I, I chose, one of the reasons I chose San Diego State is because I wanted um, to experience the college life, but didn't really think, or I, I had no reason to know this at the time, but ended up 
sort of just being a commuter school experience for me. I would show up, go to the classes, and then drive off campus and go home. Mm-hmm. But the one thing about that, um, about SDSU and, and the major was I had the opportunity to study abroad for about a year, and I lived in Germany, and that was probably one of the best years of my life. It was, there was just something about living in a foreign foreign country, and keep in mind, I was really young at this point, so I, I had just gotten over the high of living by myself for the first time, but now I was living in a foreign country with a bunch of friends, and we were functioning. Like, we we would have to go into town to pay our rent for our student accommodations and we'd have to speak to people in German and we'd have to we'd have to do all this stuff that was a culmination of several years of of learning German and other things we had to take classes in German and write papers and for many other reasons which I won't get into it was probably one of the best years of my life oh. I'd recommend to anybody who's in in even in law school study abroad it is just a fantastic experience Agreed. And, and, you know, looking back on it now, being that, you know, I know in, in uh, throughout your career, we'll obviously get more into this, but you've done a lot of international work on the, on the tax front and on the, the privacy front is obviously centered around the GDPR. So, you know, was, was that experience, was that year in Germany uh, helpful nowadays? I think so, but it's sort of, I'd say the other way around a little bit, given that I grew up in in Europe. And when I moved to America, like I said, it was very different back then. Um, I think it would be a lot easier to make that transition today. But back then, I mean, American culture was kind of walled off a little bit. We got movies six months later. We had TV shows, but it just wasn't like this ubiquity that is now. There was no internet. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was sort of when we moved to America, it was this massive change. So it's always kind of stuck in my mind. So going to university, I always wanted to do something that um, would help me work internationally, right? Mm-hmm. That that was my motivation, I suppose, is I wanted to, I was aware that there was this whole other world out there and I just wanted to stay in touch with it. So that's why I chose international business. That's why um, I studied abroad. That's why, funnily enough, I chose tax when I went to law school because it was the global aspect. And I honestly, I think that's how I fell into privacy because of the global aspect of it. Interesting. And just get into that a little bit more. What What is it about, you know, the international world beyond the, the walls of uh, the American border that's, that's so interesting to you? You know, I suppose it's just the different ways that people can look at the same thing, right? Different perspectives. It, it and, and I won't go into detail, but it's always struck me as odd that you go to one country and things are just accepted as the way they are, and you would never question it. And then you go to a different country, and it's completely the opposite. <laughs> and I just thought that's funny, because if you think about things now, things that we accept as norms, things that we would never question, and then you go to a different country, and people are like, no, we don't do any of that. That's just silly. Move on. And we have this whole other thing. So I, I just, for me, I thought that was kind of interesting, right? It was just, I won't, wouldn't say it was a way to rebel against certain things, but it was just nice to see that even the, some of the most ironclad beliefs could be challenged and, and potentially discarded in other cultures. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like I said, we'll get more into your privacy career later on, but just to, since we're yeah. on topic right now, anything specific on that front, you know, in, in the privacy world, you feel like that in, in you know, specific examples or in certain countries, something's accepted as normal and in others, it's, uh, you know, they would never think of doing such a thing. 
So I don't know if we wanted to get this deep, but I've always thought it was interesting, the different approaches to privacy in Europe versus America. In America, it's, you know, especially when you go through law school, you learn about the Fourth Amendment. It, um, privacy really somewhat seems to be a relationship that you have with the government, right? I get to say what I want. The government can tell me what to say. Um, the government isn't allowed in my house unless they have a warrant. So privacy really sort of means all these these things that have to do with law enforcement or the government. Whereas in Europe, it, it's more of a fundamental right approach. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that, you know, I, I got trained from the IAPP. So when you read their materials, they make the case that a lot of the European mentality of privacy was informed by the atrocities of World War II. And the fact that certain governments, the Nazi government had all this data on their citizens that allowed them to do um, ter terrible, terrible things. So again, government, but I, it transcends that. It's it's more focused on the individual and being able to control who knows what about you. Um, and I think that we're at a time now where those different approaches are sort of meeting and coming together um, because with obviously tech and the internet and, and the advent of ad tech, both sides are starting to realize that privacy and, and controlling the data is really becoming this massive issue that we haven't had to grapple with in this manner before. So I think, you know, I have a lot of respect for both approaches. Um, I do tend to think that I, I, privacy should be a fundamental right. It's interesting because in the United States, right, it's not mentioned in the Constitution. It is a judicial construct. Um, which to me is fascinating. So I could I could go on and on about this, but you know I don't want to give this huge discourse on on my thoughts on privacy. Yeah, yeah, no, just unless you want to, I'll talk privacy all day. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, well, we'll we'll get into the the next piece. So you you then had to, I think maybe a little break between uh, undergrad and law school. Yeah. So I graduated college a month before nine eleven. Um, I took some summer classes to finish up, graduated. And uh, yeah, so there weren't a lot of companies hiring after, uh, you know, around the dot-com boom and then 2001, 2002. And I think what what really did it was I, at this point, right, I'd, I'd moved out of my parents' house. I'd got a college degree. I'd lived in, in, in a foreign country and I'd been self-sufficient for a number of years. I didn't want, I hoped that, I didn't have to take a job where it would pay so little I'd have to move back into my parents' house. And I couldn't find any job that paid as much or more than what I was making as a part-time waiter. Wow. Um, and keep in mind, this was 2002, 2003. So, you know, that, that was unfortunate. And a lot of the opportunities that I was looking for just didn't exist. Um, mm. So I just said, you know what? I need to figure out a plan B. And until I do that, I'll just double up on what I'm doing now. So I got a second job waiting tables. So now I was waiting tables at one restaurant serving breakfast and lunch, and then at a different restaurant serving dinner. And I did that for a couple of years. Once or twice, it was really interesting because somebody would come in for lunch at one restaurant and I'd wait on them. <laughs> and they'd come in for dinner at the other restaurant. I'm like, hey, and I'd wait on them again. Or even worse, Somebody would come in for happy hour one night, and then the next morning, bright and early, I'd be serving them breakfast. Um, 
but I just did that for for a couple of years and that enabled me to bankroll enough to kind of take a step back and take time off and study for the LSATs and, and do the whole law school thing. Is that calculation you made back in uh, high school about how much, you know, waiters make in the end, uh, even after you had a degree, you're still still doing the same work? Yeah. So, you know, I used to be a tax attorney, so I realized I probably shouldn't say this, but a lot of the money you make is um, or a lot of the money that I made back then was cash. Um, and that's all I'll say. So, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, myself and my friends had a little bit of surplus cash is what I would say there. Uh, okay. Yeah, I hear you. So, um, all right. So then we'll get into what I guess was the decision to go to law school. Was that always on in the, in the plans? And then uh, talk about actually, you know, deciding to to go to San Diego again. No, I don't think I ever wanted to go to law school. My roommate said it once, but I think he only said it because he liked that TV show Jag. And I thought, well, that's just a stupid reason to go to law school. Um, one of the waiter waiters I worked with, she went to law school, and I was just in awe. I was like, wow, I can't believe that. She went to law school. That's amazing. But like I said, I was doing the um, the restaurant thing on two fronts. I did that for two years. What I had hoped to do was to go and get um, a business, uh, an MBA. Uh, one of the schools I was accepted into as an undergrad was NYU. The Stern School of Business just looked absolutely fantastic. I wasn't able to go. So in my mind, I always thought maybe as an MBA. A lot of the MBA programs I looked at, um, they wanted, they favored people or recommended that people have a year or two of professional experience under their belt before coming in. I didn't think that that really meant me waiting tables. So it, it just, you know, I thought MBA would be good. But then things started getting kind of dire after two years. And I thought I need to find a way to get back into it. And I don't, I, you know, I wouldn't pretend to understand this logic now, but I thought law school, I'll go to law school and that'll get you back to Europe. That, that, that's what I'll do. I mean, I, again, I don't understand the logic. Um, there were probably a lot of reasons I wanted to go to law school, but I would say mostly it was just born out of frustration with knowing that I wanted to do something more and I was facing all these obstacles. So for example, you know, I couldn't get a job with experience because again, back in 2002, a lot of the companies that were willing to hire, there was no salary. It was just pure sales commission based. And I thought, well, that's cool. But yeah, I don't know. A minimal salary would have been nice. Then I almost got hired by this um, national car rental agency place. Um, it wasn't called national. I'm just saying it was a national. I don't want to name the one it was. And they said, no, we, we really like people with social skills. And I started interviewing with them and they said, yeah, we have a management trainee program. I thought, okay, that sounds interesting. I didn't realize that that was the entry level position. Every single person they hired was in the man uh, management trainee program. And I thought, well, if everybody's training to be a manager, who are they managing? But you know, whatever. And what, what I started realizing there was they didn't seem to value people who, um, as they said, they, they just want the jocks and the party animals. That's like a direct quote from what they told me during an interview. They don't necessarily care about the eggheads or the people that studied hard. And it, it just made me think. I, I put a lot of thought and care into my college major, and I worked really hard. And I I didn't want to work for a company that didn't value that. Right. right. Um, so, again, I, I just kept hitting all these walls. Like, what can I do? 
Um, and it didn't seem like the economy was getting any better. And I knew that I wanted to go to grad school. And I, I just think I started talking to people, some of my friends or, or people, I work, like I mentioned, I worked with somebody who went to law school. And it just seemed like there were a lot of opportunities there. Um, mm -hmm. And it would open up avenues. And just because you went to law school didn't mean you had to litigate or go to court and argue. Right. Very true. So so then uh, you ended up going back to San Diego and uh, went to law school there and uh, get into, you know, that. <laughs> and exactly set my sights that far, I admit. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> get, to, I yeah, you get, get into that a little bit more there as far as being uh, in law school and some of your some of your internships at uh, I think you're at elder law clinic and um, you're teaching language. And so, so get into th that experience in law school. Sure, there's a whole lot. So one of the things I learned in undergrad was, you know, grades are great, but that is your opportunity to get an amazing internship and get work experience. And as I mentioned, when I graduated, I didn't really have a lot of work experience and that counted against me. So in law school, I thought, well, I'm not going to make that mistake again, which is ironic because in law school, it's really, I think, about the academics. You really want to do well the first couple of years. Um, so I, anyway... I thought I'm going to get experience. So each of my three years, I had um, I had a job. I started off working in the elder law clinic because they said we'll take anybody and even even one else who have no experience. That that was um, that was a really cool opportunity. And I met somebody, Mark Turner, who was an older attorney who I became really good friends with. Um, sadly, he passed away not too long ago. But I, uh, he, he was one of those people that's sort of an unintentional mentor, if you will. Um, but when I, when I volunteered for him, it sort of it coincided with this massive news event in America. And I don't know if the name Terry Schiavo means anything to you, but about 20 years ago, every single person in the country was talking about it. Um, it sparked an entire debate over the right to die Um and this was a lady who I believe she had um, some sort of, I, I think, a heart attack or something, but essentially she was brain dead. And her husband wanted the feeding tube removed and her parents didn't. And it, it dragged on for years. Eventually, the feeding tube was removed and she did pass away. But there was no hope for her recovery, according to the majority of the people, uh, the medical experts. So while this was going on, uh, this is when I volunteered at the Elder Law Clinic, and we we had a lot of people showing up because they thought, you know what, I don't want that to happen to me. I want to have an advanced healthcare directive that'll spell out all the uh, you know my wishes in a variety of variety of scenarios where I'm no longer able to make that decision myself. Wow. So unintentionally, I ended up being very busy there. Uh, you know, and that was good, but again. The, the lawyer who I worked for, Mark, Mark Turner, just a solid guy. Um, mm -hmm. I ended up going to lunch with him. And even after I finished that internship, I'd still meet up and would go for lunch and would just have some of the best chats. And he he gave me a lot of valuable advice. And uh, yeah, he, he was a good guy. And I miss him. That's great. Now, uh, at what point were you already thinking uh, going into tax law? So it's actually funny. I haven't thought about this in 20 years, but I mentioned when I was working in the restaurant, I had a colleague and she went to law school. So she went to um, University of San Diego, which is where I ended up going. 
so of course, you know, we meet up and she was telling me, you know, if you're interested in, in working for corporations and being an in-house attorney, you should look at the tax program. USD has a fantastic tax program. And long story short, USD enabled me to graduate in three years with both a JD and an LLM. Well, so I, I graduated with my JD six months early and they allowed you to take some of your LLM classes while um, going through your JD. So essentially, I, you know, I had two degrees in three years, which, you know, the goal was to get a job, right? That, that's why I went to law school. I was frustrated for a couple of years um, after my undergraduate degree. I couldn't find work. So I thought I need to find work and I will do whatever it takes to set myself apart. So when she she told me this opportunity, that's what became my goal. Interesting. Now, um, and, and did you kind of understand the international angle of tax right away or that, that happened later? Yeah, it's pretty simple. Somebody has money and the government wants to take it away from them. And that's it. That's that's tax, right? <laughs> no, I mean, there are a lot of concepts that are the same. And it, it has been really interesting to see how international tax has developed and for me, it's interesting because there are a lot of parallels uh, with how privacy law is developing. Hmm. Um, you know, a lot of tax planning, there are certain jurisdictions that are more favorable for a tax efficient structure. Um, there are also more regions that, or jurisdictions that are favorable from a privacy perspective. Um, if you If you so structure your activities that way. So it's interesting to see the developments on both on both fronts. Tax, I don't know if you asked this question, but it was never really for me. It was a vehicle to get what I wanted. I wanted to do um, some sort of corporate law. Um, I wanted to work in-house. I wanted to have a job. And tax seemed to be the ticket. I graduated uh, in 2007. So I think you know what was about to happen. Um, just hope I don't ever go back to graduate school because it seems whenever I graduate, there's a major global recession. So <laughs> I was thinking that too. The last time was right after 9-11. So yeah, yeah. So should I tell you about my tax experience? Absolutely. Yeah. Get into it. So I, um, I, well, I, I mentioned I work every year in law school. So the, at one point I was an intern for Hewlett Packard. And I enter, I was the assistant for the person who ran what's called transfer pricing, intercorporate pricing, right? So basically, you just making sure you're not um, taking advantage of tax jurisdictions too, or tax havens too much. Hewlett Packard, I don't think it even really exists anymore in the same sense, right? There was a split, blah, blah, blah. But back then, it was, it was really interesting. And I have never seen a company make as efficient use of their technology as I did then. Um, they they had some amazing platforms or, or software that they use that it's been 15, 17 years and I still haven't seen anybody do it better. Um, but no, that was great. I did that for about a year or so. And the lady that I worked with, uh, for, she, she, when she got her JD, she took her CPA exam and the bar exam at the same time, wow. certified public accounting and, and the bar exam. So she 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 was a hard worker. She told me that if I'm really interested in tax, 
what I might want to consider would be to work for a public accounting firm, one of the big four. And oh. she said, lawyers who are tax lawyers never really get to see the the nuts and bolts of how it all works. And if you were to do that for a year or two, you would have such an advantage. So I thought that sounds good. Um, so that's the route that I took. She put me in touch with somebody and I got hired on at one of the big four firms. Um, and, you know, now it's the, the Lehman Brothers was still around. They hadn't collapsed at that point, but things were starting to look dire. All, all I can say is this. I worked in a small market for international tax right before a global recession at an accounting firm. And I don't want to say negative things about the accounting firm, but I want to frame it and, and make it so that it's more understandable why it just wasn't right for me. I thought this was a terrible experience. Again, my situation uh, hopefully was unique in the sense that from what I heard now, that group is probably doing really well and really interesting things. But back then, before a global recession, there was not a lot of M&A activity. There was not a lot of need for global tax structuring. And the work I ended up doing was just was not in any way interesting or suited to the skill set of an attorney. Uh -huh. um, so eventually, as with a lot of other companies, they had a reduction in force. And they let go of all the attorneys because, frankly speaking, we weren't needed. They needed more of the bread and butter accountants, you know, the, the tax compliance work, filling out tax forms. And I thought, well, that didn't work out. I will never work for an accounting firm again. It was such a bad experience for me. <laughs> but then nine months later, nine months of looking for work, nine months where everybody in the country, it seemed like they were unemployed. This was when unemployment benefits were extended indefinitely. It was a great time to be unemployed because everybody else was unemployed. To this day, nobody has questioned that gap on my resume. They looked at it and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a horrific time for those who are graduating law school. Entire classes were never hired. So you can imagine graduating top of your class and none of the law firms had an incoming class that year. Wow. One or two. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a, a very dire time. And I think a lot of people never got back on their feet in their legal career. It, it was nine months of being out of work was actually pretty good. A lot of people were out of work for a lot longer. Um, anyway, so yeah, I said, I'll never work for an accounting firm again. But after nine months of being unemployed, I got a call from an accounting firm and they said, we'll, we'll give you a job, but you got to move up to San Jose. And I said, deal, I will do that. Yeah. Um, so I moved to San Jose, worked for another accounting firm. As you would imagine, it was a terrible. It was a terrible fit, but it, it, it got me back into the game. And it was just uh, more of the same from before? It was just worse. Oh, my goodness. There, um, I worked not, okay, I billed. Now, if you think about how many hours you'd have to work in order to bill a certain amount, I was billing over 100 hours a week, several yeah. weeks in a row. I want to say a few months in a row. I had two back-to-back -back busy seasons. Wow. And, um that's not good. No, nobody should be working that much. And I think looking back on it, two things should have happened. One, I, after a couple months of billing 100 hours a week, somebody should have called me to check in and say, hey, are you doing okay, man? And that doesn't happen. But the other thing, how good can somebody's work be? And nobody seems to question that. And it was, it was really funny because I had my annual review and I just got hired and they said, you know, well done. Here's the 2% raise. And I said, I'm, I'm billing over hundred hours 
a week. And they like, well, they said, well, you know, keep doing that up next year. You'll get a bigger raise. And I thought I won't be here next year. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I found something that was more akin to what I wanted to be doing, which was um, less tax and more regulatory consulting, less, um, you know, rinse and repeat type work and more specialty project consulting at another firm. I worked there for about four or five years. Honestly, that firm was great. The work I did was great. It was a lot of, like I said, regulatory consulting, um, gap analysis, a lot, a lot of consulting work, really. And you were um, tax at that point or? No, I'd moved away uh, at this point. Tax and I weren't as friendly with each other at that point, <laughs> but whatever. I was traveling a lot. As, as consultants do, I spent a year and a half on the road where Sunday, I around two o'clock, I would fly out and I was living in San Francisco at the time. Um, for three months, I was flying to Minneapolis. And then for about a year, I was going to Manhattan. So I'd fly out Sunday at two and I would fly back Thursday night. Well, wow. So, wow, do you get obsessed with airline status and points and all that stuff? Like it was, it was, um, it was fun. It's not something that I would advise if you have a family. And um, yeah, it, it. I basically didn't live my life for a year and a half, but I, I got to do all these interesting projects and things. But when that when that stopped, um, within a year, I was married, which is kind of funny. It was like my life had been put on hold and like snapped back like a spring. So I, I just didn't really want to travel that much anymore. And um Mm-hmm. My, like I said, I got married, and then not long after, my wife and I, we were expecting our first child, and I remember, I remember very clearly what happened, um, because I was such an idiot. My wife was entering her third trimester, and I got a call, and I said, "Hey, we want to put you back on the road. We have a six-month project in Detroit," and I talked to the manager of the project, and I talked about what they were doing. There was a lot of um, anti-money laundering. BSA stuff. And I thought this, this sounds really cool. And we were just talking. She goes, wait, your, your wife is in her third trimester. I'm like, yeah. And she goes, you might want to ask your wife if yeah. uh, you should take a, a job where you're going to be on the road for six months. And I thought, well, she knows, I mean, it's my job, right? I mean, what am I going to do? Say no. And she goes, well, just talk to your wife. And uh, yeah, I called my, ma- I called that manager back about a week later. I'm like, yeah, yeah. It turns out you were right. And I'm an <laughs> idiot. Why would I yeah, that's not going to work. So I I realized that being on the road was not really viable anymore for that stage of my life. So I, at that point, I made one of the best decisions ever. I just pedaled back. I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go to work for a company that only pays you for when you're on a project. It's mm-hmm. a consulting company. And because of my prior experience consulting for Google, they put me back at Google and I ended up having that gig for four years. And that was my first entrance into the world of privacy. I worked with the third party data protection team. I was not an employee of Google. Again, I was a consultant. I loved that job. It was great. It was uh, for somebody who had been brought up in that sort of firm, working for a firm and then going into to Google, which is, I, I can't even, it's all true. Everything you hear about that place, at least back then, it was true. It was, they treat people nicely. At least that was my experience. 
and I was nine to five and, you know, I was one of the first people in and last people out. People worked really hard, but they would also work from home. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was just so nice to see a different way of working that I'd never seen before. So, um, you know, uh, again, I was third party data protection team. Um, I was working at Google and this was right after uh, Safe Harbor fell. Safe Harbor was struck down October, 2015. This was the beginning of 2016. So th- there was a lot of issues. And I just, I remember pulling my manager aside and saying, I would love to do more of this work. And she gave me um, some really cool advice. Her name is Lisa Glover Garden. I really enjoyed my time there. She said, you should check out the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And that is, mm-hmm. that's kind of what led me on the journey to where I am today, frankly. Interesting. And then just to take a step back, how did you end up getting yourself into that, you know, third party uh, data transfer world to begin with? So if I look at pretty much every job I've ever had, and it's every one of those jobs, except for the first one, was I, I got because of somebody I knew, right? So the first job I applied to, whatever, got it my, for whatever reason. And then I said, my boss there at Hewlett Packard, she put me in touch with somebody at the accounting company. And it, that's just how it went. So with Google, what it was, was um, I'd been placed there. When I was, uh, as a consultant, when I was still at one of the accounting firms, I was there for about eight months or so. And then um, before that, I was at a bank for about a year. They, they seconded me to a bank. I was at a bank for one year. I had a colleague. She was an employee of the bank. And this massive project that we were trying to do, it was a regulatory controls implementation um, a COSO framework, Committee of Sponsoring Organizations, controls framework. Um, it was just a lot of work. And her and I were just always on the phone. We were managing the prod- project for different groups. Long story short, her and I became good friends. Um, she had enough and she said, you know what? I'm going to quit my job and travel the world for a year. And I thought, that's amazing. Um, she came back and we were just chatting. And I said, you know, I'm looking for this for a new gig where I don't have to travel. She put me in touch with her company mm. and I was talking to them and they said, oh, you have experience consulting at Google. So maybe we could put you back there. And it just happened really quickly. I think within nine days, I was back at Google. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's who you know. It is who you know. And that is so true. Uh, time and time and time and time again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, so you said once you got a little bit of a taste of the privacy world, you were automatically uh, hooked. And so get get uh, into that a little bit more. I think your next job was at uh, Paragon Legal. And there you also uh, seconded at uh, Autodesk. So get into that job. Yeah, that that was interesting. Um, it, it, was, it was a fantastic company. And the people I worked with, again, all really nice people. I was hired by somebody... Um, they had just created this new position and they hired somebody and then she needed help. So they placed me with her. Um, about three or four months later, I think uh, they realized that they didn't want to go in that direction. So they let the person go. And I thought, well, I'm in limbo, but they valued the work that I did. So they kept me on, which was awesome. And I just to sort of frame this up, I was hired there in, I want to say, April of 2020. 
So just think about that for a moment. April of 2020. So I, like everybody else, I'm at home now. We're all working from home. And I had began this process maybe mid-early March when things were, you know, not anywhere near as serious. I was like, oh yeah, there's this thing going around. Oh, that's interesting. Nobody would have foreseen that we'd all been working from home for the length of time. I don't think anybody even remembers the phrase two weeks to stop the spread anymore. <laughs> so I started this, this process back in early March or whatnot. And I remember having an interview and I was like early April. The whole thing just seemed like a farce. I was like, everything is falling apart everywhere. I don't even know if this, you know, I, I've got a good gig at Google. I know that they're going to keep me on, you know, again, as a consultant, or at least I had as much reason to believe that as anything else. We had no reason to believe otherwise. Whereas here's this new gig, new role. And I was like, I actually asked, I said, can we, can we have another interview like a week or two later? And the only reason I did that is because at that point in time, every single day, there was a hugely dramatic development. Like, oh my goodness. The, everybody is, you know, my company is now making me work from home. That's so crazy. And then all of a sudden the city of San Francisco shut every business down. And we thought, oh my goodness, this is insane. And it was just this cascade of events and, you know, the sky is falling and I'm sitting here having an interview with somebody talking about my goals or what I want to accomplish for the next few months. And I thought this is insane. So I, you know, I, we had an interview two weeks later and the world was still whatever. The entire time I worked at Autodesk, I never met a single person ever. Wow. It was all remote, which now sounds kind of normal. But back yeah. then, it was just so back then. I was only three years ago, but it was absolutely crazy. Right. Um, so that was sort of, I mean, the work was great. Don't get me wrong. I learned a ton on by doing the projects. The people were great. But the most memorable thing there was just really learning the dynamics of working from home and in a small space with my wife and two children who were also at home in a small apartment in San Francisco. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Now I know you're, uh, as I, as I mentioned at the intro that you're the, the chair of the uh, privacy law section of California lawyers association. When did that start? Was it right in that time? So it's interesting you mentioned that I volunteered for the international association of privacy professionals. They have a program called the Knowledge Net, which essentially you hold events, privacy education events. I was a co-chair. Uh, <laughs> we started in January of 2020. Um, we had Elizabeth Denton come over from the UK, uh, had an amazing in-person event with her, but then we went fully remote. So all of our events from that um, from that point on became virtual so yeah anyway but right before that i remember having a discussion with somebody and uh, an attorney and we were saying why don't we have and i'm sorry not denim is elizabeth denim i said denim elizabeth denim who's the uk commissioner came over um and after that event i said why don't we have a privacy law section this is california we have the ccpa and uh, I'm not sure if they were talking about the CPRA at that point in time, but it just it just frustrated me because at that up until uh, about a year or two ago, all the privacy stuff in California was part of another section, the unfair competition law, antitrust section. And you'd go to their conferences and they would have, you know, like 
seven hours of of antitrust stuff and at the very end oh hey let's talk about privacy mm -hmm. and i thought we have enough material there's enough stuff there now to warrant our own section and so i started talking to people about what would it take to split the section off and then COVID hit i completely changed my priorities i didn't even think about it until one day i got an email saying hey guess what the privacy section has now split off and is its own section. And I thought, son of a... So apparently I was not the only person with that thought. There were some people that worked tires, put so much effort in to create the section. It's the first new section in over, I want to say 20 or 30 years. It yeah. is certainly the new section of the California Lawyers Association. We used to be part of the state bar for reasons I won't get into. Um, we split into two different groups. So we're the first new section for this organization. And it just was amazing. I thought I need to get involved because this is something we were talking about. And to be clear, I don't think I, I probably didn't have a snowball's chance of being able to split the section off, but it was something I wanted to talk about with people. There were people much um, more adept at doing this, much more equipped to do this than I was, and they were able to split the section off. So based on my volunteer experience with the IAPP, I got a recommendation and um, I joined the executive committee of the California Lawyers Association. It is fantastic. I love the section. I love the privacy law section. You do not have to be a California lawyer to join. You can just Google California Lawyers Association privacy section. You'll find all the information there. We have just been churning out an amazing amount of events, um, articles, publications. We held our first summit back in February of this year. Uh, it was a two-day summit in Los Angeles. It was absolutely amazing. It and I was involved in the planning, but I will take no credit for the success of this summit. This summit was the pure result of several people on the executive committee just putting in countless hours and and effort and it was just fantastic we had regulators we had the attorney general's office come we had the california privacy protection agency folks come we had businesses we had students it was just a huge group of people coming together to talk about um, in-depth topics of california privacy law and things that impact california such as uh uk you know, we, I think we had a whole thing on the UK age appropriate design code, which is now called the children's code over there, um, which just got a preliminary injunction over here. We no longer have that code in California. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens there. But the point is, we had that summit. The summit was fantastic. We are having another one February 9th and 10th of next year, which is a Thursday, Friday, same place, Los Angeles, UCLA, the Luskin Center. And I'm looking forward to it. I get to work with amazing people, uh, people from all different areas, all coming together to discuss privacy. And it is, it's just a dream come true. This is, I could not have imagined it would have worked out like this. That's great. Okay. So uh, a few minutes to go here. So just real quick. And now you, you're you at uh, the City National Bank. So, so get into your work there. Yeah, uh, they realized a while ago they needed a privacy attorney so why did i leave autodesk um i left autodesk because i was poached by another uh, sort of this uh, on-demand in-house counsel sort of hiring employee agency thing so i got poached and they said we're going to put you 
I'm not going to mention which one, but we're going to put you at this uh, well-known social media company that has one of the latest consent orders from the FTC. And I thought, this is amazing. And they said, we'll pay you twice as much. And I thought, well, I like that too. It was great. Um, and then I started working for the social media company and I realized that I don't have the same value set that they do. And it turns out that I think privacy and people's data are valuable and people should have say over what their data is. And I realized that this, this was not going to be a long-term thing. So I, I got another assignment at the bank, City National Bank. And right away I could tell, I was like, these are people I really enjoy working with. Um, I just, I love the people. I love the work. When I was younger, I used to say it's about the work. It's about the experience. And as I got older, and I never wanted to admit this when I was younger, but as I got older, I thought, yeah, but I I also want to enjoy the conversations I have with the people I work with. I want to work with people who I like. Right. And all of that, all of the above was true at City National Bank. It was a great opportunity for work. I really enjoy the people I work with. Um, I'm the first full-time privacy attorney they, they've hired. Um, so I think there's a lot of work to be done there. And it's just amazing. After about three or four months, I, I converted to a full-time employee. It's been well over a year now and it, nothing negative to say. It's, it's just an amazing um, space. I am incredibly lucky and grateful for everything that led me to this point. Okay, excellent. And, uh, you know, that's a nice way to wrap up with the last question for you. Uh, you know, how, how did you get to this point? What were some of the steps and the uh, you know, the experiences or the connections or anything that you want to say that is really propelled. I'll, I'll sum it all up. It's the privacy community. Everything I do right now in the California Lawyers Association is is to benefit the this wonderful community of privacy professionals that I care tremendously about. Um, every I, Just really great people, um, fascinating people. I love the history of your podcast. There's amazing people that you can hear their stories on. Um, you know, I, I just feel like I have benefited from this community so much that I love working with people. And I don't want to say it's like giving back because I generally, I, mean, I enjoy everything we're doing here, but I also like helping out students. I like helping out people who are interested in, in thinking, how do they get into privacy? Everybody has got a different story. This is all relatively new for California. So mm -hmm. uh, to answer your question, it's a privacy community. That's, that's how I got it where I am, yeah, people helping answer. me out, people saying, hey, do this opportunity, um, people opening doors for me. And I just I just want to keep that going. And I want to help anybody who's interested in privacy, learn more about it or get more involved. That's excellent. OK, and uh, with that, I'll read the little rhyme and then we'll wrap it up here. So before Nick Ginger was thinking of privacy impacts, he was working in tax. Nick's first job was at Barnes & Noble both his work in tax and privacy have been global. And uh, with that, uh, thank you so, so much for joining the podcast, Nick. Thank you so much for having me.